My guest today is Rabbi Michael Freeman. He is a senior rabbi at Temple Israel. He was educated at Yale and also at Hebrew Union College. He's been a rabbi for many years, and we are just elated to have him here to talk about religion and life. So welcome to Things I Didn't Learn in School. Thanks, Paul. Great to be here. Tell us a little bit, day in the life of a rabbi, what's it like? And if you go back also in time, what brings you to this? Like, I know I'm imagining you... Yale undergraduate, you're a few years younger than I am. When does it start percolating? This is for me. Yeah, it's a great question. I grew up in a, what I'll call a committed reform Jewish family. We were members of a congregation. And for my brother, who's three years younger, and myself, it was absolutely required beyond any question that we would pursue our Jewish education through bar mitzvah and even through confirmation. Confirmation isn't as well of a, as a known uh, life cycle ceremony, but it was invented by the reform movement, or actually I should say adapted from our Protestant Christian neighbors into the reform movement about 100 years ago, maybe even more than 100 years ago at this point. And it usually takes place at age 16. So that was beyond question in my family that we would, my brother and I would have our bar mitzvah and be, be confirmed later on. And I got dragged kicking and screaming into youth group by one of our rabbis. I give credit to Rabbi Susie Moskowitz for Hmm. somehow picking me out of the crowd and dragging me kicking and screaming into youth group. I didn't want to do it. I had other things going on. I was this awkward freshman in high school, but she convinced me to, to, to check it out. And immediately I loved it. I loved our teen youth group at my reform congregation for a number of reasons. Number one, it gave me a whole different social circle and social outlet. But more importantly, I got to ask questions and that really has become what at the time it became and still is a hallmark of what's most important to me about being Jewish. Hmm. And through those questions and the answers I found, Judaism really became something that now belonged to me instead of just doing it for my parents or for my grandparents or because I was expected or because all my friends were doing it, et cetera. I was now able to find personal meaning and direction through Jewish life. So Judaism started to become very important to me in those teen high school years. Hmm. Um, Rabbis were important mentors of mine at the time. I looked at what they did and I thought this was, this is pretty cool. They seem to have really good answers to some of the questions I have. Like they seem to get to do some great stuff. They get to do social justice work. They get to be part of this community people seem to respect them and look up to them. And at the time I started thinking about maybe this is a a path that I might pursue. I think probably many of us identify with being angst-ridden teenagers with various existential questions. What was there, can you describe a question you had and then a response that the rabbi gave you or the youth group gave you and you were like, wow, that's profound. Sure. So this picture, early 90s, Long Island, New York, there were all sorts of important topics that were important to us that you just that, that weren't being discussed in, in in high school. So, for example, HIV and AIDS. Hmm. I mean, we got education about it in in our health class, fortunately, but we couldn't really talk about the fear or the the or, or discrimination or 
that just that wasn't we couldn't. They just there wasn't a venue to talk about that stuff. Interesting. This was like a, a, a present topic for us. Social justice, homelessness. Why are there homeless people? Why in the United States, in the richest country in the world, are there still people who don't have a home? Mm-hmm. What can we do about it? It was not a class that one could take in high school. Mm-hmm. Sex was a topic for us. Really, oftentimes, sometimes, or I should say, sometimes stemming out of the conversation about HIV and AIDS. I mean, we've all been to high school. We know the conversations about sex that go on there. It's a lot of posturing. It's a lot of, um, it's a lot of bragging about things that may or may not have actually taken place. Mm-hmm. But there's very little conversation about values and what's a what's sort of an ethical approach to sexual relationships. Mm. These were the types of conversations that we were able to have and bringing Jewish values to bear uh, on on all of these topics. So that's where I saw that it was through those conversations that I first began to see that Judaism could be a guide and an inspiration for how to live a good life. Hmm. Did it set you apart? I mean, it sounds like we went to very different high schools. <laughs> I'm glad to, glad to hear that you had that experience. I don't, I don't recall, the, the people might have been doing it, but I don't recall in my high school, I grew up in Washington, D.C., people having this earnest, it sounds to me, quality, beautiful type of religious education. Did it set you apart from other kids or was this more norm in the milieu that you were part of? I mean, yeah, it definitely wasn't happening for most of the kids in my high school. The youth group created a cohort within which such conversations were were able to take place. Cool, kind of like. Yeah, it was it was great. It was great. I mean, you know, we were uh, I would not say we were the cool kids. Uh-huh. It was it was it was a safe space to discuss the topics that were most important to us. To me, it was very meaningful to do it through the lens of Jewish values and to do it with like the, I'll call it the the okay and the guidance and the advice of our rabbis. Trading as a rabbi, that is a lot to ask of somebody, both to be a religious scholar, but also to have the poise, the wherewithal, the knowledge to navigate those conversations with young people. Not easy. It's not, but but it's sometimes the most meaningful conversations that I have. Mm-hmm. Always learn from that because they're always asking questions. Young people are always asking questions that I might never have thought about. Mm. And so they force me to stretch and to grow. It's, it's mutual. It's me. They keep, they keep me on my toes. They keep me growing and learning as well. So it's percolating. Had you already decided, were you one of these people who in high school, you were like, I know what I'm going to do. This is the path I'm on. I, I, I was thinking about it when I went to college, as you mentioned at Yale, I thought, well, that's bizarre. Who becomes a rabbi? That's so strange. And I put, tried to put the thought out of my mind. And I thought about becoming an attorney, like my grandfather, who's very significant in my life. I thought about becoming a professor. I love I, I loved academia. I was, a, you know, I might become a history professor. But no matter what I did, that idea of the Jewish community, Jewish values and principles, Jewish learning, becoming a rabbi, sort of like never left the back of my mind. Huh. I found myself sort of in all sorts of different ways pursuing engagement in the Jewish community through campus Jewish organizations, through Jewish social justice work, through working at a Jewish camp and teaching Hebrew school. I just, I was finding my way in all sorts of different ways of like sort of testing out all different aspects of the Jewish community. I was in a Jewish fraternity and it was really like the summer between junior and senior year 
that I sort of said to myself, you know, why, why are you fighting this? This is where you're mm. happiest and most fulfilled is when you're immersed in the Jewish community. Mm. And that's really when I sort of said, okay, well, I guess I have to really take a look, a closer look at uh, the possibility of becoming a rabbi. Why do you think you were fighting it? You said initially it was like the furthest thing from my mind. And so it's kind of interesting. You came at it from one side and then you came all the way to the other. What was the whole range of attitudes towards it like? I don't think many kids grow up sort of thinking that this is the path that they'll take. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not what most young people aspire to, especially when you're 17, 18, 20, 21 years old, it's a little weird. It's a little strange mm-hmm. to say I'm going to become a rabbi. When did you first say it out loud to people and how did they respond? When did I come out of the closet? I, I told my parents like sort of the start of senior year of college. You know, my parents are very different individuals, each of them. My mom was like, yeah, I knew it all along. What took you so long? <laughs> And my dad was like completely stunned, but that's, you know, kind of in line with who they are. That's kind of, that's, that, as I look back on it, that's not so unexpected given my relationship with each of them and who they are as individuals. So that's fascinating. Take us a little bit about the day in the life of a rabbi. Every day is unique. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Are you tired of feeling lost in the world of trading and investing? Get informed and inspired with the Talking Trading Podcast. I'm Louise Bedford, and I'll help you navigate the markets like a pro. Tune in each week and subscribe now at talkingtrading.com.au or on your favorite podcast app, or check out the link in the show notes. Talking Trading, this is how traders excel. That's part of what I love about this life. It's more than a career. It's a life that I've chosen. We get to be part of the most significant events in people's lives. When they're struggling because there's illness or unexpected misfortune, we get the call. When they've lost someone who's dear to them, we're there. Similarly, when they're getting married or have a child or the child becomes a bar about mitzvah, confirmed, etc., we are part of those processes, not just on the day of, but all of the preparation and all of the planning, all the thinking about like, what does this mean to me? Or how do I want to celebrate this, mark this great occasion? We're part of all of that. We are very privileged as rabbis, as clergy, to be with people, to be part of the, the most significant moments of their lives. Mm. That is one of the best aspects, no question. I also love teaching. Rabbi means teacher. I get to, in the course of any week, teach anyone from two and three and four-year-olds in our uh, early childhood program here at the congregation to bar and bat mitzvah students, teens, adults, et cetera. And so that is, you know, when I was thinking about going into academia, I was thinking about teaching, becoming a professor. And so that uh, is uh, hugely important to me. Connecting with, with people, or I should say enabling people uh, through worship to connect with their better selves, with their souls, with God, with their dreams and hopes and desires is also very significant to me. Through worship, we are, we're laying the ground, we're, we're preparing the ground so that people can step into a space and have a somewhat transcendent experience, even if it's just for a moment. 
where they come to a new realization about themselves or a new understanding of the world. There's aspects of the divine in that. Talk a little bit about the role of religion in the modern world, if you would, because on the one hand, modernity is associated to some degree with uh, an adjustment of those structures, if not a breakdown. On the other hand, in your own life, it's been such a key force even seems too weak. An essence of the way you've been. Some of our email before this, I, I looked at some of the polling on this where the vast majority of Americans say they believe in God, but the rise of people who say they don't feel affiliated to any organized religion is definitely up. When you sort of consider those huge movements, what, what's your perspective on them? These, I mean, these are such great questions, Paul. There's like so much in everything that you just that you just mentioned. So I want to sort of try to address this in a number of different ways. Let's let's first talk about the role of religion in the modern. This is a whole. This is a whole topic in and of itself. We'll, we'll it's, get. It's, it's a course. It's a course. course. It's a, it's a <laughs> library, exactly. All of those things in the pre-modern world, most religion served to confine people within a metaphorical fence or wall, if you will. It defined their lives. It held them in certain roles. It defined what they could do and couldn't do. That was especially true for the Jewish community. The walls were built in part by the outside world, especially in medieval Europe, in medieval Muslim countries where Jews were limited as to where we could live, what we could do professionally, what property we could or couldn't own, who we could marry, et cetera, et cetera. We were, we Jews were forced into our identity by the outside world. And we also created certain structures and strictures for ourselves to, I'll call it, unify the community and separate us from the outside world, which was often dangerous for us. So in the pre-modern world, we, religion was very limiting. It was for us, it was for, uh, for others also, but I'll specifically, you know, my expertise specifically is in the Jewish community. Mm -hmm. In the pre-modern world, we didn't have much of a choice. And religion was, was limiting, but it also gave people very intense community. And it's mm. part of what you see. So then we go into the, the modern world and you see some parts of the Jewish world and other religious communities, but let's call it the ultra-Orthodox Hasidic world, who have voluntarily built their own metaphorical fences around their community. Um, sometimes they choose to live separately. Sometimes they, cho they choose to not to have certain professions or limit who they can marry, et cetera, et cetera, because they want to recreate that intense all-encompassing religious experience for their community. I'm, of course, on the other end of the spectrum. Mm. As a reformed Jew, we've fully embraced modernity. Mm -hmm. And so that means all of the fences that held people in have broken down. And therefore, it's not a fence that holds people in. It's that there's got to be something strong and powerful at the center that gravitationally pulls people in. Mm. For example, that for me was what I mentioned a little while ago, the opportunity to have a safe space where we could discuss the most important issues of the day. As I said, human sexuality, HIV and AIDS, hunger and homelessness, et cetera. For me, that was sort of the gravitational pull to say, wow, there is something awesome and important and sacred here 
that can help me live a better life and help me improve the world. And that really gets to the core of like what has to be at the core. At the core, everyone is looking, every human being, mm. to live a good life and to help improve the world. And that's what every religion seeks to provide to its followers. Reform Judaism above all, because we don't put specific limits on what people can and can't do. We generally don't put specific limits on what people can and can't do. Instead, we want to be that inspirational gravitational force that people want to be near because being part of our congregation or being part of our community provides inspiration, connection, transcendence even, awe, hope, wonder, direction, purpose, all of those things, all of those intangibles that we're all seeking, but that no amount of money can buy. Mm. That's what a successful religious community in the 21st century has to be able to provide. It's a tall bar. The tallest. That's what, it's the only thing worth doing. So let's talk about the general, the movement to people feeling that these structures, while clearly for many, many people, it's central to them religion. It's also true that there is a group of people that feel the same seeking, but less of a relevance to the structure. What are the trends there? I'm ignorant. As you noted, surveys report that 90% of Americans believe in God. Right. Now, in some ways, that is a wildly unexpected statistic. Yes, I was, I was amazed. There's no other Western country that even comes remotely close. You do the same survey in the UK, in France, in Germany, in Canada, even in Canada, not even remotely close in terms mm. of religious commitment. So America, which was founded in many ways on religious freedom and religious liberty and religious commitment, mm. all of the founders were religious, um, that has been a through line uh, throughout our entire history. We are more religious than any other Western country by far. However, as you also noted, Paul, I'll call it religious affiliation has decreased over recent generations. It's not a, it's not a new thing. It's been going on for a few different generations. And, and I believe that's due to the failure of institutionalized religions to actually serve the needs that people want. You know, in our neighborhood, why do people go to Soul Cycle? Why does why do people have a Peloton at home and like commit hours to those types of experiences? When religions become institutionalized, we become fossilized. Right. And that's when we stop serving the actual perceived needs of human beings. So this 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 is really deep. So I'm going to pause you on this thing. So on the one hand, any institution needs to sort of have an integrity, a, a tie to the past, a consistency. You just can't make it up from scratch each day. And on the other hand, the rate of change, which is something that I've written about a lot, is so fast that this tension is very very acute. And to try to find it in a way that's relevant seems extremely complex. Absolutely. And Reform Judaism specifically operates right in that tension. Obviously, we are committed to the past and to tradition. And yet Reform Judaism was founded by Jews who say, we want, we want to reform, to change, to evolve, to adapt, and to update 
this tradition that we've been handed. So mm. I'm proud, for example, that Reform Judaism over the past 40 years has been at the forefront of welcoming interfaith families into Jewish life, of uh, establishing equality, gender equality, gender equity in Jewish life, of welcoming LGBTQ individuals, now transgender individuals and families into Jewish life. Mm. We've, we've really been at the forefront of that. Mm-hmm. We're trying also to hold on to this as, as best we can to this beautiful, awesome, wise, and ancient tradition that has been passed down to us. So we very much operate with a foot in both worlds, and we are always trying to navigate that, that tension and bring the best of, our, of the ancient wisdom that we've been handed to the challenges and opportunities of today. Doesn't mean that we don't fall, we fall into the same trap as everybody else. We become institutionalized, we become too rigid, we become too firm, we, you know, all of those things. But at least we, we are, part of our philosophy is to continually re-examine our, our practice, our philosophy, our beliefs, to update them to serve the needs of Jews and everyone else today. How does that happen? Fortunately, in Judaism, there is no central uh, anything. <laughs> There's no central authority. And so we do not have to wait. No, no rabbi has to wait for some, any central authority to, you know, give us permission to do this, that, or the next thing. In, in Judaism, you know, across the board, each uh, rabbi, once you're ordained, can make decisions for him or herself. In my particular case, as rabbi of a large synagogue here in Connecticut, I'm trying to make the best decisions, you know, that serve our people, that serve the needs of our people, like the actual congregants of our congregation. And if I do things a little bit differently from the synagogue down the street or the synagogue across the country, that's okay. There's no central authority that's telling me that I can or can't do certain things. I'm responsible, just like an elected official is responsible to their constituents, I'm responsible to my congregants. Can, can you talk about that a little bit? Because I, the congregants are people just like everywhere else. There must be some people who don't want X, Y, and Z deviations. The other people want more exploration of something else. 100%. Rabbis serve at the pleasure of their congregation. So again, no centralized authority. There's no centralized office that sends a rabbi to this congregation to that and then says, okay, it's time for you to move to a different congregation. It said, I don't think I would do well in such a system. I know I wouldn't do well in such a system. Leadership is not just doing what the majority wants because, well, for a lot of reasons, leadership is not just doing what the majority wants. Leadership is first building relationship so that even those who disagree with my decisions as rabbi or my positions as a rabbi, at least understand that they are known and heard. Leadership also is being out ahead, not just reflecting the will of the congregation, but shaping the will, the desires, the attitudes of the congregation based on my interpretation of Jewish tradition and the needs of the present. So it's, it's, a, it's a careful balance and it's a, it's a careful dance. But through relationship, to me, that, that, that's really the core of it. So Because even with, whether people will agree with me or disagree with me, I want to make sure that they feel known and they feel heard and they feel validated. You know, if we may disagree on topic A, next week we might agree on topic B because we remain in relationship. For people who are less familiar with Judaism, can you try to provide context in terms of the major uh, religions of the world? And again, that's also a three-semester course that I understand. (laughs) So I'll go back to our conversation about the pre-modern world and the modern world. When the modern world sort of arrives and human beings now have 
choice in their lives. The, the world of choice opens up, especially for us Jews. There are Jews who choose different paths. There are Jews, as I mentioned, who choose to essentially recreate that medieval enclosed and, and self-contained community in the modern world, that would be the ultra-Orthodox, the Hasidim, et cetera, whether they're in, you know, in, in their enclaves mm -hmm. and their interaction with the outside world, they choose to limit or put boundaries on their interaction with the outside world. Mm -hmm. There's the modern Orthodox world, which intends to live a life defined by Jewish law as it has been understood throughout the millennia, for example, to eating according to Jewish law, to um, working according to Jewish law, to keeping Shabbat, not, not working and not, you know, not interacting with the outside world on the seventh day of the week, on the, the Jewish Sabbath, which is Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. And then there's the conservative and reform world, which bring more of a modern interpretation to Jewish law. We still say Jewish law, the Torah is important, but we need to update, change, evolve, adapt Torah and Jewish tradition in order to suit the needs of today. The difference between the conservative movement and the reform movement, as their names suggest, is the degree to which we are willing to quickly adapt to the needs of today. The reform movement is the most willing to adapt and change quickly. And what do these different groups think of each other? So if you're sitting, you're on an airplane flight and the guy next to you is a Hasidic rabbi, what's the conversation like? I think there's a huge range and that comes from my own experience. If I'm sitting next to an airplane on, uh, with, next to a Hasidic rabbi, it could be everything from the guy, because it's always going to be a guy, the only men can be rabbis in their tradition as opposed to in our tradition where women can be rabbis and cantors. It could be a guy who thinks I am the worst kind of human being because I am perverting Judaism and ruin thereby ruining Judaism. You know, and that would be like on the worst side of the spectrum. There's a Hebrew term called, uh, which comes from the Greek, Greek, apikoros, someone who is like intentionally subverting Jewish tradition. That would be like the worst uh, type of- That's a pretty serious charge for a rabbi. Yeah, yeah. if I took it seriously, <laughs> from his point of view, that right. would be unfortunate. I'm not going to change what I do because there's a particular rabbi who thinks that. On the other hand, I know personally Hasidic rabbis who say, you know what? It's not the way I would choose, but I respect what you're doing. And clearly mm. a lot of people are interested in what you have to offer. Which, mm. by the way, Paul, is the same thing I would say about them. It's mm. not the life that style that I would choose. It's not the way I would choose to practice Judaism. But I'm glad that there's people who find meaning and purpose and value in your brand of Judaism mm. and want to, want to live by it. Mm. So that's you know there, there's 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 the entire range. Right, and then contrast, if you would, uh, Christianity, obviously much more of a central authority, and uh, Islam. It depends. So in the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church is probably what we, what many of us are most familiar with in terms of a centralized authority. At the very top, the Pope at the Vatican in Rome, and then sort of a pyramid structure down through the diocese network down to the local level. The Protestant Christian denominations can range significantly. Some are more centralized, not quite probably as centralized as the Catholic Church, but some are much more centralized, all the way down to the totally decentralized types of denominations, many evangelical 
churches operate on a very decentralized model, for example. There isn't a, there isn't a central authority that dictates to them, you, you have to do this or you have to do that. And if you were to talk briefly on uh, Islam too, but the uh, if you were to talk about that tension they have of the central force having to be attracting people there, their answer to that modernity, how they adapt it, is there a notable contrast, you'd say, between the way they're approaching it and the way, say, the Reform Judaism movement is? I would say within the Christian world, the Catholic Church, many of the Orthodox churches, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, etc., etc., are less apt to adapt from their traditional stances or sl- slower. They, they are intentionally slower to adapt from their traditional stances. They would say, and many would agree, that's a good thing. There should be eternal truths that hold no matter what is going on in our world at a particular time and place. And I can see the value and the attractiveness in that. On the other end of the spectrum, there are liberal Protestant denominations or liberal Protestant churches that are very quick to adapt and therefore are, I would say, more philosophically oftentimes more philosophically aligned with Reformed Judaism, but that, you know, it's not an exact parallel. I have so many good relationships with Catholic leaders Mm. and such respect for many Catholic leaders that I know and and love. In fact, one of uh, of my formative experiences as a Jewish teen was on a teen interfaith program for Jewish and Catholic high school students, Mm. Project Understanding, led by a priest, and a rabbi, and we were all teens from our own, our our local area, selected into this program, applied into this program, and selected into this program, and we spent a year learning about each other's faiths and communities, and then we traveled to Israel together for a week, and I participated in this program when I was 16 and 17 years old, and I really was just inspired by my Catholic peers, who were so many, so, so very much similar to me in so many ways, TV shows, music, et cetera, et cetera, and yet had a very, very clear, a very, very clear model of what it meant to be a good Catholic and what Catholicism asked of them in the world. And I, as a Reformed Jew, really had no particular idea of what, I, what it meant to be a good Jew or what Judaism, you know, where were the boundaries of what Judaism asked me to do and not do in the world. I hadn't really asked those questions or I hadn't really been exposed to those questions. That was also an important step on my path to becoming a rabbi. I would think there's certain things in Judaism that would be pretty clear, like Ten Commandments or something like that. What was the different degree of ambiguity that you had compared to your 17-year-old Catholic peers? Because Judaism, and especially Reformed Judaism, I would say all of Judaism, all of Judaism, really focuses on asking questions and exploring the multiplicity of answers. That's exactly what the Jewish rabbinic tradition is about. That's what the Talmud is about. That's what all of Jewish literature is about, is asking the tough questions and exploring a multiplicity of answers. You often don't get to a clear, here's what Mm -hmm. you do. Meanwhile, the Catholic tradition has gone a bit of a different direction. They say premarital sex, here's the right answer. Whereas opposed to, whereas Judaism, we would say that we would explore the different texts and explore different possibilities and bring our own, especially in the reform movement, bring our own 21st century sensibility to it. And ultimately say, it's up to each person to develop their own answer. Some are probably gonna be better than others, 
but there's not a clear black and white. Whereas in Catholic tradition, in many, many, many aspects of religious life, there's a clear black and white. So again, if you could take me into that, you know, you and the Catholic having that discussion, or now if you're with you know, a bishop or something like that, what do they make of the degree of ambiguity that you are endorsing relative to their mission? Um, so you're asking me to, to, to imagine a hypothetical conversation with a Catholic leader? Or, or when you were 17, so you're with these people, they, the same thing, you, I, you had the plane with the uh, Hasidic guy before. So does a Catholic 17-year-old be like, that's crazy, man. You can't, <laughs> like, you got to lay down the law. What, what's that conversation like? I'm generalizing tremendously here, but I would say that th- there is a certain value and appreciation to certainty. So for many people, including me mm-hmm. sometimes, just tell me what to do. It's just easier that way. It's more comforting. It's more sure and certain. Just tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. And even if I might disagree with it or push back against it, at least there's a black and white that I'm pushing back against, Mm -hmm. as opposed to the ability to live in the grays. I've learned that I'm I'm actually pretty comfortable living in the grays and saying, Mm. you know, I don't, I'm not sure I have a specific answer, but here are some thoughts. Let's talk about it. I'd rather live in that world than the black and white world of a revealed and handed down religious authority, so to speak. But sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's hard. Mm. And your thoughts on both Islam in these in these regards, both the structure and the degree of ambiguity question? Absolutely. One of the interesting historical aspects of Islam that we are very much seeing the reverberations of today is that the Enlightenment generally, the Western intellectual European Enlightenment that that we all know from from philosophy class, did not make its way into the Muslim world in in the same manner. What happened is that modernity arrived in most of the Muslim world in the form of white European colonialism and resulted in a clash of values between the West and Islam. And oftentimes, and and I'm generalizing here, but oftentimes instead of Islam, uh, Islamic leaders Muslim thought leaders engaging in, uh, in, in, a, in a productive and collaborative way with the new ideas that were brought into their midst, there was resistance and pushback. And so Islam, in contrast to Judaism, Christianity, Catholicism even itself, which had its own counter-reformation, never really institutionally went through that process of engaging with modernity. That's part of what we're seeing in the Islamic world now is that wrestling with how, how do we be both traditional committed Muslims and be part of this modern world? There are many who are navigating it beautifully. I have you know, relationships with imams here in our area. There's certainly plenty of things we don't agree on, but there is a lot that we can do together. And that's what's most important to you know, to our relationship is what can we do together? That is a very uh, important factor in contemporary Islam is still wrestling with the interaction with modernity. Have you had that conversation with imams? It's almost, it's a conversation that is, it's almost like we're speaking different languages. It's like, you know, bringing the Yankees to play at Giant Stadium. You don't, they don't mix. It's a hard it's a hard conversation to have. We have it in certain ways about, you know, how do we serve the needs of our community in sort of in practical terms, 
but philosophically it's difficult to have. So for, you know, one example is that Reform Judaism, Conservative Judaism, even Modern Orthodox Judaism has long recognized that God didn't write the Torah. Human beings wrote the Torah. Doesn't mean it's any less special or sacred. If they were wrestling 3,000 years ago with their relationships with God, their relationships with their fellow human beings, and their own internal psyche. That's what the stories of the Torah are, written by human beings, but made sacred by generations of being treasured by our people and being passed down from generation to generation. In Islam, even among the most forward-thinking scholars, there hasn't yet fully been an exploration, a source-critical exploration of the Quran. Who actually wrote it? or how many people might have contributed to its writing, how did it come to be in the form that it is, et cetera. What are the textual variants within it, et cetera. That's an example of where it's difficult to have that conversation, but that's okay. It doesn't stop us. I'm, I'm less focused. If I was a field, if I was really like doing my work as a theologian, I, like that might, be, that might be bothersome to me. It's not really that bothersome to me. What matters to me is, how can we continue to get to know one another? And what can we do together to improve our own communities and to improve our world? And the answer is there is a lot. And I don't really, as a rabbi, need to get involved in the, the authority of the Quran. The, the Muslim colleagues you know, here in our area are just like our congregants. They are trying to live the best life that they can live for themselves and their families. They're trying to figure out how to be a good human being through the lens of their tradition, through the lens of, of Muslim tradition. And they're trying to figure out how to improve our world. And that's the same thing we're trying to do. And so anyone of any religious background who is, who is using their faith to do those two things, become a better human being and help our world, we're in the same boat. We are trying to do the same thing. And there's a lot that we can do together. I'd like to ask about the rise of anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is an eternal enigma for so many Jews. I certainly grew up in a time and place where I thought anti-Semitism was part of history, no longer really present and existing. I mean, of course, I thought the same thing about racism. Come, came to learn that it wasn't. It certainly wasn't history. Uh, it was still very present, and sadly, we've come to learn that both racism and anti-Semitism are very, very present. Anti-Semitism is, you know, one of the leading scholars of anti-Semitism wrote, you know, how do you explain a thing which is in essence absurd? What does that mean? Well, anti-Semitism posits that Jews are both simultaneously the lowest form of human existence, unworthy of civil society, dirty, you know, subhuman, and also some sort of powerful international call that controls banks and media and governments. How can both be true? Right. And as soon as you prove you're not one, you, you, you become lumped in with the others in the eyes of anti-Semitism. One of the patterns of here in America in the 20th century, in the second half of the 20th century, post-World War II and post-Holocaust, is that it became step by step, bit by bit, really, really, really unfashionable to be anti-Semitic in any, in any way, shape, or form. The Jewish community helped make that the case in the public sphere, but many of our friends and allies outside the Jewish community made that really clear. You couldn't mm. say, you couldn't publish, you couldn't do 
anti-Semitic thing. Mm. Slowly and slowly, in places and schools and universities and jobs and corporations, whatever, that didn't welcome Jews, bit by bit by bit, by the end of the 20th century, there was really nothing that we couldn't do, no place that we weren't accepted. And that's a wonderful thing. In the 21st century, first you have the rise of the internet, which breaks down the walls of those who can publish and have their voice heard. If you wanted to write an anti-Semitic screed in the 80s and the 90s, no one was going to publish it. So it wouldn't get any eyeballs. Interesting. On the internet, anyone can publish anything. You could even do it anonymously, and it's going to get a trillion eyeballs. So first of all, the internet gave life, gave oxygen to all these old anti-Semitic tropes and even new ones that have been invented. The second thing is in the last, you know, five, six, seven years, there have been particular individuals in power who have essentially legitimized in the public anti-Semitism in the public sphere. And they've legitimized it by doing by a, a number of ways, but including refusing to call out anti-Semitism when it's been when it's when it's happened. And so therefore we have we, we've seen a rise in anti-Semitic words and deeds, anti-Semitic at attacks on Jews, discrimination against Jews, all because it's been legitimized from above, from the very top of our society. And that is somewhat scary to, to many of us, obviously. And these waves of anti-Semitism, do you relate it to anything causality? economic insecurity, information availability is one of the things you've clearly cited, or is it just random? Disinformation availability, that's for sure. I would call it that. You know, again, this is, this is a nonsensical yet eternal human phenomenon, anti-Semitism. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't have any bearing in fact or in history, and yet it's impossible to quash, to, to, to root out. On the one hand, I can't connect actual anti-Semitic acts to any particular event or historical or historical pattern. On the other hand, what we are seeing literally today, spring of 2021, is a greater connection of the actions of the state of Israel as the Jewish state to the identity of Jews around the world. What that means in practical terms is Jews are being attacked physically, verbally, on social media, et cetera, because of the actions, the perceived actions of the state of Israel. The state of Israel, which has already become, quote, unquote, the Jew, unquote, of nations, the outcast, the one that is different, comes to stand for all Jews around the world in this ironic twist of fate. And so as Israel enters and pursues an armed conflict, with the Palestinians, we feel the effects. We Jews around the world feel the effects here. The name of the podcast is The Things I Didn't Learn in School. So if you look back on your journey now, what is the biggest surprise or biggest takeaway lessons that weren't at all of your training that you found from this years of um, your work, your calling? Such a good question, Paul. In school, you learn the nuts and bolts, but you don't really, there's no way, there's no way to teach someone how to be a clergy person, how to be a rabbi. There's no way to, that rabbinical school can teach love. I once went to a colleague, a Christian colleague, gave a sermon that whose message was, love your people. And no amount of education can teach you that. You have to really come to see mm -hmm. the divine, the soul, the humanity in every single person. 
And that is, that is what we do as rabbis, I believe. We try to see what people are aching for. What do we really need in our lives, in our society? What's going to help us live better, deeper, fuller, more meaningful lives? And then we access this vast treasure trove of the Jewish tradition and find the pieces that are going to provide that most readily to individuals. And so again, school teaches us about the beauty and depth and vastness of the tradition. Then it's up to us to like to use the different tools and pieces to provide that to our congregation with love. Thank you for making time for this. I know you're busy bouncing an enormous amount of things. This is a great conversation. I, I appreciate that. Thank you. Today's podcast was produced and edited by Dave Manahan.